And it was overwhelming. It was the most intense interview experience of my life by far. That's Martin Desmond Rowe, the Academy Award-winning co-director of BS High, recounting his experience interviewing Bishop Sycamore High head coach Roy Johnson. Do I really want to be famous? Do I really want people to see me? Here is a portrait of a con man. How often does a straight con man sit down and tell you how and why he did the con? My name is Mary Pallon, and I'm the host of the BS High podcast, the official podcast companion to BS High, the HBO documentary, which you can watch right now on Max. This podcast gives an exclusive behind-the-scenes look at what went on with Bishop Sycamore and how we told the story on screen. Today, we'll be talking to Martin, who, with his frequent collaborator, Trayvon Free, co-directed the documentary. One of the first tasks that they faced was interviewing Roy, who had agreed to participate in the film. A lot of Roy Johnson is anecdotal, right? A lot of it becomes legend. But what on earth would Roy say once the cameras were rolling? What was his role in all of this? What was the movie you thought you were going to make before Roy gets in the chair? What was the movie in your head during your early discussions? Yeah, well, and I mean, after the first phone call, I, I think we thought we'd been hired to make a sort of lighthearted story about like, you know, people faking it until they make it. You know what I mean? And, and the, the pitfalls of faking it till you make it, I think was sort of like a, a, a largely comic story of can-do spirit getting a little bit ahead of itself. Um, because when you first talk to Roy, um, or when we first talked to Roy, he was beyond hilarious. I remember it. He was sitting in, a, sitting in his car, holding his FaceTime camera up so that the sun was across his face and he was wearing sunglasses that he pulled down half of his face so that he could show us his eyeballs if he wanted to by raising the camera up. I was like, my God, this man's a character. He was such a little movie star. And he was just regaling us with stories. I'm a son, a brother, a nephew, a coach, a motivator, a father. He just was telling us the most self-aggrandizing, but also self-deprecating. Those are like the serious answers. But for a little bit easier answer that people can digest, I always refer to the A-Team. I took the embodiment of that show. Like I thought I was Hannibal. Hannibal would come up with plans all the time, and then the plans were crazy, right? Even though the plans didn't necessarily work out the way they should, they worked. He was so winning. We were like, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. This guy's hilarious. He's a great narrator. Obviously, he's you know, not the most reliable narrator of his own life. Um, but, you know, there was, a, there was a sense of getting the truth would, might be a challenge. Um, you know, he had a bit of the Trump to him, I suppose, is, was our initial feeling. Um, uh, but I suppose pre-President Trump, I suppose sort of like the apprentice Trump when it all felt kind of fun, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, um, um, and so we were thrilled. So we thought we were going to be making a lighthearted story about poor hustlers doing their best and kind of, you know, girl bossing a bit too close to the sun uh, was kind of what we thought we were going to be making. And that is very much not uh, what we discovered when we started to, to do the filming. When did the shift occur that we're not making a Bad News Bears story, that there's something more here? <laughs> yeah, Bad News Bears is a good cop. Um, uh, it began during the research. Um, it didn't just begin with Roy in the chair. There was a lot of good research that had been done before we, before we joined the project. I don't want to take credit for all of it. There was 
some excellent reporting in the Times. Um, there was an enormous amount of work had been done by Andrew King, who was a local journalist in uh, in Columbus, who had written about it for a number of different outlets uh, over a number of years. As we got stuck into the you know the evidence that had been previously dug up, we started to realize, oh, there's this isn't that light. There's some there's some real there's some challenging aspects to this that we're going to need to get into with Roy and we're going to need to actually understand. We can't allow him to come and only tell his side of the story when it was so clear that there were many, many other sides to the story that needed to be examined, most of which, or I would say all of which, <laughs> almost all of which painted the story and Roy and uh, to some degree Andre in, in, a very, in a much darker light than uh we'd we'd even imagined and then so you know we hired a crack team of researchers we got to work digging up what was there and i've got to say the researchers very quickly gravitated towards yeah, the research team that we had on the project in, they sniffed out the seriousness of it almost overnight um there were just too many things that didn't add up you know, the money, where did the kids come from? Where were the kids staying? Why did the kids, why was there no consistency of kids from year to year? Was there a school? Did anybody go to school? Were they, what were they telling the kids before they got there? What did the kids discover when they got there? Was there straight fraud? Whatever level of nefarious behavior was happening, there was absolutely an, it was an atmosphere of chaos. Um, and an un, uncontrolled chaos was, was the, uh, <laughs> was the, uh, the, Bishop Sycamore brand, as far as we could tell, which, you know, when we got Roy in the chair for the big interview made a lot of sense. Um, you know, attitudes trickle downhill or, you know, whatever they say, culture comes from the top. What was that first sit down with Roy like? You know, we began filming uh, the whole project once we joined with a three day, 10 hours a day interview uh, with Roy. So it was a 30 hour session that we shot all in one room with the same lighting setup, and and basically anything you see in the film of Roy was shot in this one room, and the majority of it was shot in these first three days. And it was simply—I mean, I've had the privilege of interviewing hundreds of people from every walk of life, and although yeah, although from celebrities to um, African tribesmen, right? And I've never been in an interview scenario. I mean, it was overwhelming. I think maybe that's the word. It was the most intense interview experience of my life by far. Roy walks into the room and before he's even sat down, he asks the assistant camera operator, the person that like changes the lenses and keeps the cameras clean. He sits down, he looks at me, he goes, hey, do I look like a con man to you? Do I look like a con artist? That's what I'm asking. Do I look like a con artist or do I look like a regular normal person? Okay. Yeah. It was a specific question. Yeah. And this poor camera kid, <laughs> you know, he's like 25. He's like, <laughs> he's like, why is the scary subject guy talking to me? Uh, and he's like, you look good, man. <laughs> and Roy goes, but that wasn't the question. And as I'm, I'm listening, I'm like, oh, he's walked in here. He wants to control this interview. He's walked in here thinking that he can outsmart us and outplay us. It's rare in documentaries that somebody with so much to lose, is prepared to sit opposite people that, let's be honest, right? There's a huge amount of documentaries made at the moment where somebody famous is involved, and oftentimes they're listed as an EP on the project. It's some version of the official narrative. Doesn't mean the films aren't good. The Last Dance was a great series, but Michael's an EP on it, and they can't put anything in that Michael doesn't want to put in, right? 
Roy sitting down like that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is a battle of wills right now. He wants this film to happen because he fun, he's a narcissist. He, you know, he subscribes to the Trumpian logic of there's no such thing as bad press, you know. And in addition to that, he wanted to, he's just excited with a big Hollywood film crew. I mean, we're a little, <laughs> you know, it's funny is in our industry, we're a small little dot crew, right? There's like seven or eight of us. So Roy um, sits down opposite us and tells it, you know, and, and I realized immediately, okay, he's come here to tell us a selected, highlighted, edited version of his life and effectively try and con us into creating, presenting a version of him that he can live with. I mean, without wanting to, you know, blow our own trumpets or whatever, but like that's, that was catnip to Trayvon and I. <laughs> uh, we're like, wow, this is going to be one of those. Like, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> um, and it was the most, yeah, that's what it is. Of all the interviews, of the hundreds of interviews I've done on camera, it was the most thrilling because Roy's smart. He's really smart. He's one of the smarter interview subjects. He's one of the smarter people I've met. It's such a tragedy what he's chosen to do with that intellect. I respect his, his intellect highly. I don't respect his actions very highly, but his, his capabilities, I do respect. He's electric. He's charming. He's dominant, but in a way that is welcoming and, and entertaining. You know, he expects your attention, but he does it. He demands it by rewarding it with entertainment. Um, and yeah, it became a three day game of cat and mouse of can we hold him accountable? And it was fascinating the speed with which he could deflect a really strong line of argument. You know what I mean? Like we could come at him with a fact. He wanted to be engaged theatrically. I suppose that's my way of putting it. He's a very theatrical person. And in interviewing, you want to match the energy of the person that you're interviewing. You wouldn't go hyper theatrical with, with a very, you know, calm and rational person with those, you know, you, if you're attempting to get them to open up, you have to, you want to communicate, not always, but sometimes in the language that they enjoy. And Roy wanted theater. He wanted that. And so we had famous Royisms uh, that we just quoted all the way through production. You know, I'm not a con man, I'm con man-ish. And I think I'm the most honest liar that I know. So if you ask me if I'm, I'm a liar or have I lied? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, like, what the heck does that mean, Roy? Um, and what it meant was um, the essence of Roy's relationship with the truth can be summed up is I will never tell you a lie about something I can prove. That is the essence of his truth. A, it's kind of gibberish. <laughs> it doesn't really make sense. But if you, if, you like, if you squint, what he's saying is that he's not a fool. He will only lie when he thinks he can get away with it. And then the follow-up sentence to that, which I do think would, I do think is a movie, he said, because I have different values. I value loyalty more than I value truth, which is the sort of thing that mafia people say. <laughs> As you said, Roy has a flexible relationship with the truth. How did you, as an interviewer, attempt to hold him to the truth? We knew going into it, he was going to try and lie constantly. Either Trayvon or I were doing the, uh, the, the actual question uh, asking, because we had this, we had the device set up where, where the main interviewer and, and, and the subject are looking into each other's eyes with a bit of sort of mirror trickery. Then the other director was sitting with a headset on just behind that director and then we were had an open chat window and we were feeding questions back and forth, trying to stay ahead of him, trying to have facts <laughs> to counteract his, his jibber-jabber. 
Um, I've, I've, I've done it before, but I've never had to do it before where we're screaming at each other in the, <laughs> in the chat, like, like, yeah, trying to find a date, you know, like all, all of this kind of stuff. It was, it was wild. How did Roy react when he was confronted with facts that did not line up with the story that Roy wanted to tell? You can't help but analyze the psychology of the person you're interviewing. You just, you can't, even though we're not professionals and I don't want to give any sort of diagnosis. But this was a man who, it didn't matter how hot it got. It didn't matter that I was sitting there caught set telling him that he'd committed fraud and that we would be putting that in the film. He's, I mean, he got angry. He screamed and he shouted. The only thing that ever really got him angry were things that weren't true. Like, like the occasional thing that we, that we got wrong, that would trigger him so hard. That's how we could know. But like the rest of it, he would just stay charming um, and try and try and get away from us. An unforgettable interview. And, and also the corner of the film. I mean, when we had that, we got to the end of those three days, we knew we had the movie. We, the, here is a portrait of a con man. How often does a straight con man sit down and tell you how and why he did the con? Like, it's fascinating. We'll have more of this conversation in a moment, but first, a word from our sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Roy was just one part of the story. The other major element were his former players. What was the process to get their perspective in the doc? Yeah, we had a hell of a time tracking down the kids because their names were never like probably there was the, the date. Like obviously, Roy wasn't sharing sharing any official school paperwork with us. I mean, if there was any, um, but um, so we were tracking down the kids piecemeal by what we could find. You know, initially, Roy gave us a list of the kids he wanted us to talk to. And so we were like, mm, those aren't probably the kids that we're going to want to talk to here because Roy's telling us to talk to them. But those are a lot of the kids we talked to. And they didn't ever, <laughs> if those were the best kids Roy could provide as character witnesses, um, then he was, you know, he was doomed from the start because even the kids that loved him and still had affection for him saw him for what he was by this point. So I suppose it's worth saying that school existed in two different, in, well, in various incarnations for four years. It existed one year as a school called Christians of Faith, um, which was the big dream, right? That was the big con. That was, that was Roy almost touching the sky. He managed to convince two churches, kind of, uh, to give him a huge plot of land worth a lot of money. And then the plan was to take a loaner out against the value of the land to build a beautiful campus, bring all these players in and set a school. And he worked with this guy, John Brennan, who's in the film, who's unbelievably hilarious and a really... Like most of the volunteer football coach dads that we met during this process, a truly wonderful human being. And John had set up a football program before. And so the plan was set up a school for a couple of years. And then once the school was up and running, then do the big football program. Roy couldn't wait. Um, he blew the deal uh, with the financiers and the backers. And it all got pulled apart and he just kept going. He just didn't care. So we had a bunch of kids coming up to this school 
where they thought they were coming to this, you know, he would send out this video, which is in the film that we found, this video of what the campus was going to look like. And honestly, it looked bigger than JFK. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, like that, or like, what is it, like that Singapore airport with the like fountains falling from the sky that you can't stay in for more than four hours because it's like a four seasons. Um, it looked like that. And <laughs> um, the conservative estimates is like a $250 million build this place. He's sending videos of that thing around to the kids, telling them that that's where they're going to be staying. And then when they actually get there, they get dumped in like, Amish land in cabins <laughs> or like five to a room in, in unfurnished um, uh, apartments. And they're practicing on dirt patches outside these apartment buildings. You know, it was just madness when the kids got there, but the, the gulf between what he promised them and what he delivered. Um, and, but the first year was the best year. That was the year that they maybe had a shot at this money. And after that, they changed the names to reduce the heat on themselves because the first year was such a spectacular failure. They changed the name to Bishop Sycamore and they did it for three more years until they finally got busted. And so we, we went and looked for kids from all four years because even though, you know, it was this one game that kind of sparked, you know, worldwide interest in the story. And once we realized how many kids had been affected by this, we wanted to talk to as many of them as we could and find out how deeply they had been affected. Like, was this thing largely funny? Was this thing tragic where, where was it on the spectrum for these kids that was kind of what we wanted to get into and the stuff we learned was just heartbreaking it was straight up heartbreaking after talking to the kids and their families there was a final interview with roy what was your goal going into that session you know we talked to everybody and we kind of collected everything we found a lot of you know a lot of things i've talked about um, a lot of these really awful behaviors that he'd done um, and along the way we sort of become cognizant of the secondary figure andre peterson who was Technically, I think the president of Bishop Sycamore, um, but it was pretty clear that Roy was still the, the driving force of the entire operation. We decided to get both of them in for a final interview because we had everything that we wanted to say in the film kind of lined up. Um, and we had what was a very intense interview with the two of them where we just sort of went through all of the accusations that everybody had made. And, you know, as, as, it's this is a journalistic film, right? This is an investigative journalistic film. So it, it, it's we weren't doing a gotcha. It wasn't that we were like getting, you know, we, we weren't getting Roy and Andre there to be like, ha ha. We, we, we were we wanted we wanted them to get a fair shot at this is what these people say, or this is what this document says, or this is you know what this PPP loan says, and we wanted to give them the chance to respond. But it was an extremely tense experience. Um, and I suppose probably most typified by the moment, which is in the film of, in the first interview, Roy and in all of our sort of follow-up conversations, Roy and Andre have talked about how much they love kids and how much the kids love them. Almost every single one, I mean, certainly every single one of them broke our heart um, in terms of saying what it was like to turn up to a place, hopes and dreams and realized, you know, actually, uh, I think um, JD, Justin uh, said it best. He's like, you know, it's, came to this school that I thought was going to be a good Christian school where I was going to get to play football and, and better myself. And it turned out to be full of the gangster behavior that I was running away from, that my parents, you know, that my mom was sending me away from. You know what I mean? And the kids all had that experience. And so, and this, and bear in mind, like half the kids that we spoke to on camera were kids that Roy literally told us to go speak to. And so we played a, an edit to Roy and Andre of these kids telling him what they felt about him. 
was very interesting the way the two of them reacted. Andre got quiet and sad, and Royce stormed out screaming and just calling them all, calling the kids liars. It took him, like, even Roy, it took him 30, 45 seconds, maybe even a minute to get his charm back, right? Like, he, he tried to turn it into a joke eventually, tried to make it, tried, but he just couldn't. He was so hurt. Because he realized in that moment the film wasn't going to be positive. You know, up until then, he'd been, he'd assumed he was going to win and that, that this was largely going to be a, oh, naughty Roy uh, kind of vibe. And then he realized that it was going to hold him more accountable than that. It wasn't an easy day. I share a weird moment. <laughs> Because he's such a theater, he's so theatrical. That was the ending of the interview. Basically, we knew that we knew that once we dropped that one in, there wasn't, we, you know, we weren't going to be able to go back and get detailed stuff. So after that, we stopped rolling the cameras and Roy starts crying and basically asking how he can get better. And he starts hugging me and crying and I can feel tears running down my neck. And I'm like, this is not in my job description, Roy. <laughs> um, and like I say, you know, Again, if you put this in it and when Roy listens to it, I do see some light in you, Roy. I do. But I don't know that you know what atonement really looks like because you can't do it unless you admit what you did. And I was receiving the definition of crocodile tears. It was like a two-year-old that being caught with their hand in the cookie jar. Um, but it was a 40-year-old man bear-hugging me. Uh, it was a very... I'll never forget it. Like, I've never had, <laughs> I've never had that moment from a subject before. And uh, I knew enough about him by that moment to realize it was like nine and a half percent sincere and, you know, 90.5 percent theatrical. Last question. What impact do you hope this film will have? So that's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, there's lots and lots of answers to that. I certainly hope that Roy and Andre do not, are not allowed to set up another school, <laughs> which, I mean, that is, you'd think that that might be low hanging fruit, given what he did. But the truth is, that with a combination of Ohio state law and, and federal law, the, the way these things go, as a religious school, they're basically immune to any oversight or regulation. Like, there's no, as Roy says at the end, we can't stop it. <laughs> um, he's not wrong. Like, legally, they would literally have to change Ohio state law to stop Roy and Andre from doing this again. However, one hopes that shame <laughs> might at least stop Andre. If you're listening, Andre, please let shame stop you. I can't imagine it stopping Roy, but maybe collectively the, the shame of the universe will, will at least slow them down. But this is, as they say, again, as Roy says, he's far from the only person doing this. This is a cottage industry playing on these kids' dreams. You have a bunch of kids who've, it's actually something Trayvon and I were talking about literally yesterday, actually, is really what's the film about? The film in a lot of ways is about the curse of low expectations. You have a bunch of kids who've been told by their socioeconomic status. Those are great kids, all of them. But they are from a system that has told them that they are largely valueless apart from their physical prowess, probably since they were eight or nine, maybe younger. And so what you have is a bunch of kids who've been led to believe they have no real value, except maybe in this one warrior area. And so then as the top of that pyramid approaches, and there are less and less spaces available, they get more and more desperate because they've not been taught that they have any other meaningful value. Into that gap between the number of spaces at the top of that pyramid and the number of kids that want it come these slimy, slimy gits. And Roy and Andre are by no means alone, and they're probably not even nearly the worst. You know, there are schools in every state doing some version of this, um, taking advantage of these kids. If he can do that there, best believe someone else is doing it somewhere else. You know what I mean? Praying on these kids and probably at a grander scale. There are the tangible call to action 
things that, that a film can do, which is please God, look at the way these football, football academies are set up. Um, because they are hurting kids. Bare minimum, these kids had a year at a critical development age where their worthlessness and valueness that, you know, the fact that they had no value to society was reinforced aggressively. They went to somewhere that was promised as a Xanadu and turned out to be fifth level of hell. Right. And that's the unforgivable thing that Ryan Andre did. And that's what they also can't see because they're like, well, the kids had shit lives anyway. And so, so what? We gave them a bit more shit. It's like, yeah, but you promised them something different. You took on the role of dad, which these kids desperately wanted, and then you shat on them. So who were those players? The ones that we saw on ESPN. The ones who had played for Roy before. In our next episode, we'll talk with Meech Golden, the producer who spent time tracking them down and hearing their stories. And of course, you can catch BS High on HBO and streaming on Max. And you can follow the series right here on The Athletic.